Hey everybody, welcome back or welcome to The Mound Visit, the catcher's only podcast show. We are so excited for you all to take a listen to this one. You're going to need your pens and notebooks for this one, ladies and gentlemen, because this episode is a definite note taker. We sit down with legend and icon of baseball, Jerry Weinstein. Jerry provides nugget after nugget after nugget. So let's get into this episode right now. All the young coaches I work with, I said, my job is to eliminate my job. I don't want codependent players. I want them to learn how to figure it out. A lot of misinformation out there. If you learn how to coach yourself as a player, if we teach a player to do that, we've really done them a great service because the best lessons are, are and most long-lasting lessons are self-taught. They've got to figure a lot of this stuff out for themselves. And sometimes... This is a double-edged sword, especially with all the technology. We can really get very granular. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to The Mound Visit, the catcher's only podcast show. I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Goodrow, and with me, as always, is my other co-host, Chris Snooze. We say this every show, but we are excited to bring on our next guest. This man is a legend. Where do we start on his resume? Started his career coaching at UCLA, assisted le- legendary college baseball coach Ron Frazier at Miami, was the head coach at Sac City Community College for 23 seasons, winning 16 league titles, winning two California state titles and one national title. Under his reigns, he had over 200 players drafted and 28 reached the big leagues. He's managed at various levels in professional baseball, was the manager of Team Israel in the 2017 World Baseball Classic. He served as player development, director of player development for the LA Dodgers. He's been the manager of Warren Gateman of the Cape Cod League, currently works in scouting and player development for the Colorado Rockies. He's an ABCA Hall of Famer, the author of The Complete Handbook of Coaching for Catchers, and the volume two, I think, is coming out here real soon. We are pleased to welcome, in my opinion, the godfather of baseball, Jerry Weinstein. How are you doing, Jerry? Thanks again for joining us. Hey, good to be here, Tyler. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, that's a long resume. What's the first word to come to mind when you hear your, your experience and in, in kind of your pedigree in, in baseball? I'm very old. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so much experience to be had there. And, and again, it's been, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, the first thing that we like to start everybody off, so we're not get, letting you get off the hook on this one, Jerry, is our rapid fire blocking drill. Chris and I will just ask you some few questions at random just to kind of get, a, get to know a different side of, of Jerry. And, and I want to kick us off. As I stated in, in the intro there, you'd coached at UCLA. Were you friends with the great legend, uh, John Wooden? I, I wouldn't say friends, but I, I knew Coach Wooden, and Coach Wooden was a, was a tremendous baseball fan, came out to all of our home games. And at one point they built, they tore down our baseball field, Joey Brown Field, and built Pauley Pavilion. And so we were working out in the fall on the intramural field and we would uh, lock her in Pauley Pavilion and they were practicing. And I finally got up enough nerve to go up to his office and ask him if I could watch practice. And he said, yes. So that was a, that was a significant highlight. Unbelievable. Chris. All right. So my first question would be as a kid, who was your, uh, who's your favorite baseball player growing up? Roy Campanella. That was that was quick. No thought on that one. No, no, no. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, no uh, living on the West Coast, no big league teams, and and uh, so I followed the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Campy was my guy. 
Very cool. So Jerry, uh, again, going back into your resume and your experience, what got you into coaching catching? Why, why did that become maybe the forefront and the love of, of passion and coaching of coaching catchers? Well, I, I mean, I actually, I coach everything, but I kind of uh, professionally in a niche with, with catchers, even though I've managed mostly in professional baseball, even though I, I've also been catching coordinator numerous times, but uh, I was a catcher and I really never played any other position. So uh, quite naturally, I, uh, I, I, I fell into what I knew most. Well, we're grateful that you did because again, you've, you've just every single time you, you look on social media or uh, a speaking events, you, you're always there and you're providing just insane amount of knowledge. So we appreciate it. All right. So my next, my next question, since we went to um, who was your guy growing up, <clears throat> there's a lot of, I mean, this is kind of an all time high for um, athletes behind the plate as far as receiving behind the plate. Who's, who's a guy right now that you just like to just sit and watch? Like if they're, if they're playing, you're going to make sure that I'm going to watch this game versus something else, just because this specific guy is, is playing. Well, I think the, the catching position is really, uh, has really improved uh, in the last five years, especially from the receiving standpoint. There are a number of guys, but I like, I, I'm really enjoying watching uh, Austin Nola catch right now. I, I think uh, very athletic and a good technician and a relatively inexperienced catcher behind the plate has gravitated there late in his career as an infielder. Yeah, he's been a lot of the, the posts that we're seeing, especially since he, since he got traded, you know, there's, I mean, Tyler, you've posted a whole bunch. Um, Jerry, I've seen some of yours. Um, you can go on, scroll through Twitter or anything else, and you'll find, you know, a few different videos of him. And um, I don't know how, how tall he is, but he just, he looks just very loose, relaxed. And he's got a, he's got a flow to his game right now, which is a lot smoother than guys that have been up there for, you know, five, 10, uh, even 10 plus years. Well, I think athleticism has really come to the forefront in, in catching. And I've always said that the two best athletes better be your pitcher and catcher because they touch the ball more than anybody. And, and I, on a given day, there's three guys that are going to determine whether you win or lose, the pitcher, the catcher, and the umpire. And the catcher impacts two of the three. Incredible. So this might be a tough question. So you've been involved in baseball pretty much your entire life. If you weren't coaching baseball, what would you do? Um, well, I, I was torn between going to law school and, and getting a teaching credential and coaching, and, and maybe I'd be doing that. I, I don't know. I'd be, I'd be reading. I'd be working out. I like to work out. I, like you were running, you talked about your run this morning. I just got back from the gym. Our gym has all the equipment outside, so that's good for me. And Absolutely. Uh, I like to read a lot. I like to write. I, I might be a writer or I don't know. <laughs> Hard to say. I never really thought about that. I'm too, I'm too old to have a plan B right now. <laughs> the first time I met you, Jerry, I have to tell Chris this story, but I was, I went to the ABCA back in Dallas. Um, I think it was two years ago. And I, I said, I, I had a goal. I said, there's a couple people that I wanted to, to meet in person, uh, shake their hand, have a conversation with them. And, and sure enough, I was having lunch with uh, some people, some friends of mine, and I saw Jerry, he was on his way to, uh, to the gym, or at least I think you might've been coming from the gym because you, you were drenched in sweat, but you had a book that was the size of my head. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say. I don't want to sound like an idiot when I'm talking to, <laughs> to, to Jerry, but uh, 
no uh and and again i i think we before we hopped on and we hit record um i talked to or i listened to the the talk you had with pete caliendo and said that you know you're very active working out so that's that's pretty neat all right so the last question i had for our rapid fire blocking drill is are you still able to throw batting practice you know uh it's it's funny you should ask, not funny it's but i've got a a partially torn rotator cup i got a partial thickness tear in my infraspinatus i don't know how i did it as a matter of fact i'm going through rehab right now and trying to get myself back to where i, I can throw and uh, i have a tough time right now getting into external rotation but uh oh. I'm, I'm working at it i'm going to uh physical therapy and and our trainer keith duger has given me some stuff to do and then i had a massage some some lady just about killed me the other day <laughs> and, and uh, went through massage therapy and and uh so i'm <laughs> that's my goal <laughs> in this off season so we touched base on you know just kind of what you were just doing you were working out and and obviously 2020 is maybe a, a year that most people want to forget, right? Um, how has this impacted what you've done, uh, you know, as far as routine? You know, I mentioned again into the intro going back to it that you have managed in the Cape Cod League, and I think you were set to go out there again. Um, but how did, how did this affect your routine? Would you be in instructional ball right now? I know a lot of the instructional leagues are going on, so I, I guess start from there. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely impacted me because I was working part time, even though I was probably putting in full time hour wise for the Rockies in player development and scouting. I'd go out and see all the uh, top catchers in the country and line them up for our, our scouting director, Bill Schmidt. But they furloughed all the uh, part timers. And so uh, that kind of curtailed a good piece of what I do because I would be in an instructional league right now, I think, if I were not on furlough. But, you know, the reality is uh, I've gotten a lot of time to – I finished the second edition of my, my, my book. I've gotten a lot of time on the Internet. I've done a lot of uh, Zoom stuff like this for people. I've done a lot of writing. I've done a lot of reading. Uh, we live near the beach. Every, we got a routine. We go to the beach every morning and have coffee and read the paper, and then I go to the gym and work out. Then I come home and, well, the last uh, – since – since the season started, I've been glued to the television set watching. One day I watched, uh, I think I watched 16, parts of 16 games one day because oh, wow. we got the Major League Baseball package and, and now with the playoffs and, you know, I'm kind of locked in and uh, when, when the World Series is over, then I'm, I may be searching for things to do. But, you know, <laughs> compared, to, compared to what some people have had to go through, I consider myself very fortunate to be able to do what I'm able to do and and uh, just trying to make the best out of uh, the situation. I've spent a lot of time uh, on the internet. I've spent a lot of time talking to different coaches and uh, looking. I, I, I took two classes from uh, from uh, uh, 108 Performance, and I talked to those guys all the time. And I've done a lot of stuff going through all the uh, driveline videos, and and uh, I'm reading Zach Chant's book on conditioning right now, and so. Uh, I, I keep myself busy. So I got a question. What does your setup look like? You said you watch parts of 16 games one time. Do you have like 10 monitors up in a, in a living room? Well, on, on the MLB, on the MLB like TV, you, you can put four games on at once on that. And then I've got a big TV and I've got my 
iPhone and I got my iPad. So, but I'm bouncing back and forth. I'm not watching 16 at once, but I've got, I can watch four, five, six, seven at once. Oh my gosh. Uh, and you know what I like? My wife would kill me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been married 54 years and my wife, she understands. <laughs> well, Jerry, so we had uh, Joe Hudson on um, a couple weeks ago and he was talking about how you know it's just it's weird with the with the cutouts and the fake crowd noises have you have you talked to anybody up there right now where they've kind of kind of said the same thing about how the the normal routine even for catchers you know is kind of it's just kind of strange you know you walk into a into a stadium and you see nothing but cardboard cutouts and you know it looks like an old hitchcock movie have you talked to anybody that yeah, you know, has kind of said they had a message yeah, I talked to the our Rockies guys. I talked to Charlie Blackman and and Nolan and those guys. And then Brent Strom is a good friend of mine. I don't think that's an issue. Uh, I mean, that's then you're worried about stuff you have no control over. What if nobody showed up to the game or it was a, a late at night extra inning? And I don't think that's a factor. What's the biggest factor for them is it's taken them out of their routines relative to how early they can get to the ballpark and their preparation and hitting on the field or in the cages and uh, use of video during the games, I think that's substantially affected a number of players because they rely on that to make adjustments from at bat to at bat or those types of things. I think more, I think the fans, I think once the game starts, I, I don't think that that's an issue. Uh, the situation, they're more in tune with the, the situation on the field. The scoreboard is the thing that affects them more than anything else. I know we're kind of jumping around here back and forth. Um, Going back into what you've done with with the player development currently now with the 2020 season, are your catchers meeting, uh, the minor league catchers, the ones that are, are still active um, on a daily basis with, with player development as well as the catching coordinator to, and maybe it's not a daily basis, maybe it's a weekly basis, but how often are you guys meeting and, and what are those conversations like? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, before I was furloughed, I was involved in, in, those conversations with the catchers and we would meet once a week and very productive very i thought they were extremely good art we've got an outstanding catching coordinator mark strip matter and he did an excellent job with those guys having different topics and he'd give them the topics before they got on and there was a lot of uh, participation by the by the players and both our latin players and our and our uh our u.s players and i think uh very beneficial uh talking about pit you know he'd have a different topic but then he spent a lot of time on pitch calling and giving them a scenario uh with a scouting report on the pitcher and a scouting report on the hitters and then looking at uh, a particular segment of the game and talking about pitch calling and 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 evaluating it and critiquing it and getting everybody's uh, input on on the the actual pitch calling which i think is something that we probably don't spend enough time to uh, developing and for sure in in amateur players where the coaches most of the time call pitches 100 percent agree i know you talk a big portion about on your first book um which i have a cop my copy right here i need to send it to you so hang, hang, on, hang on one sec i'm yes, gonna sir. get some there it there's, is there's there's wow very nice awesome. so we're this, we're, one, we're, go this ahead. one's got a lot of different stuff in there uh, I, you know, if I might, I don't mean to interrupt there, but no. you, know, you, you write a book and basically I wrote that book because I was bored writing on buses. And so I would, 
I took about five or six years to write it, and and by the time I got published, got it published, it was, you know, probably seven years old, and then it's been about close to ten years now, and so all that information is some of it is still applies, but a lot of it doesn't. There's a lot of new stuff relative to one knee stances and mm-hmm. different pitch calling aspects and different data points now, and and uh, I probably added so. When I wrote that book, it was outdated. But since the COVID, I had the opportunity to spend three months and redo it. And so all of it is pretty current. And uh, there's a lot of new stuff in there. And I, 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 I'm pretty critical of what I do. And I don't like most of the stuff I do. I do like this book, however. And I'm not trying to sell it. I'm not, gonna, I'm not, I'm not pushing it. But next week, it should be out. Oh, very nice. Well, um, I'm going to get my copy. I know for sure. So going into that, like you said, it's new current. We're in a new era of kind of the catching, especially because of, of stances setups. Uh, you, you hear a lot of flack from people on social media, and, and it may be former big league catchers, and then you have current like college coaches, guys that are just trying to get their start, that are really applying a lot of the, the stuff that maybe a, a Tanner Swanson had the gumption to, to go in and, and have the conversation with his director of player development and say, hey, give this a try. You're not going to know unless you do try. But I, I guess going into this, it's a great segue, and I'm glad you brought it up. But, like, first off, your opinion of a one-knee setup. Do you think it's happening too often, not enough, or just the right balance? Well, it depends on the individual. You know, uh, it, it's everything is based on you know dealing with individual differences. But the the reason, the the whole reason that guys are catching on the knee now is because of the the importance of of uh, the strike and the the difference between the strike and the ball and how it affects runs saved in over the course of a season. Because you're talking about somewhere between seven and ten thousand pitches uh, blocking there might be 20 balls in the dirt that have relevance during the season, maybe a couple more throwing, you know, there might be, you know, 60 total attempts. And you, and if you look at the runs saved and the data just tells us that mm-hmm. the, the better receivers save 27 runs over the average guy, that's not over the worst guy, but over the average guy. So 27 runs translates to three or four major league wins, which a major league win is worth about $9 million based on the, the difference in uh, run scored uh, relative to a ball or a strike on a particular count because the, the, uh, the, the uh, values differ based on the count. Uh, the difference between the average blocker and the elite blocker is only one run over the course of a season. And uh, the average thrower over the elite thrower is maybe three runs. So we're talking about 27 runs versus one run versus three runs. So we're talking about putting our, in ourselves in the best position to receive and learn how to throw and block out of that position. Then the other alternative is based on the situation, you prioritize the situation. If it's a, if running, if stopping the run, uh, running game in this situation, maybe two outs in the ninth inning of a tie ball game or a one run ball game with a blue chip runner on first base, Maybe I put myself in the best stance to throw if it's not a one knee stance, which I think it can be for a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. Or if there's a runner on third base and in two outs, two strikes, and you're going to bury a, a breaking ball in the dirt, uh, maybe I assume the stance that puts me in the best position to block that pitch. Or, or if receiving is important, then I do that. 
So you have the you have the option to put yourself. I mean, having multiple stances is not a bad thing. Yeah. And uh, I think that most catchers have both a left knee down and a right knee down stance and an up stance, and they vary their stances. We all vary our stances to a certain to a certain degree. Uh, but uh, I, I think that where the criticism comes in is on uh, anytime something goes bad when a guy's on a knee, it's because he's on a knee. Right. <laughs> you know, and that's just not 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 the truth. Like most of those balls in the dirt that don't get blocked when you're on a knee, don't get blocked when you're in a traditional two-point stance. Right. And, and you see that often. And, and it was funny. And, and I go back to, and I know, Chris, you didn't, weren't able to attend the Nashville ABCA convention, but Jerry was up on the stage and the hot <coughs> stove. And I think that was the, the only thing that we got accomplished that evening uh, was people talking about the one he set up. And, and uh, I thought you brought some valid points, Jerry, and I know Ryan Sienko did and Brian Watley, who, who played for you at Sac City and stuff, they all brought some valuable points to it. And it's just set like, a, it was like cyclical, it just kept coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up. And, and again, to your point, uh, more so than transactionally, we need to set up situationally for the pitch. And I think that's what you're understanding is that the run game, and I know you're a big, big uh, teacher and, and coach on the run game control. How, when you look at this and you talk about setting up on, a need or maybe you're setting up for that situation. Um, obviously a lot goes in play with who's on the mound, right? Because of how quickly they deliver the ball to the plate or, you know, maybe they don't deliver it, their, their, uh, whatever you want to call it, their leg kick or their um, stride, whatever is, is not as long, but they deliver it at a hundred miles an hour. So, I mean, is that playing in part two? Um, because you see guys that are, runners at first base and there's the criticism again of everybody hey this guy's on a he's he can't throw him out he's on one knee so well you... the fact of the matter is that the the, the pitcher is, is everything if you got a guy with a bad leg and a bad move and has one tempo to the plate in terms of how he holds the ball you can kiss the baby it doesn't matter what you do the guy's going to be safe <laughs> uh and so that's a you know that's a, a partnership and it's a package deal if he, the guy's got to have a good leg and he's Idea. There's no reason he can't have a good leg. There's no reason he can't vary his tempo, and there's no reason he can't have a good move. It's not like they have so many things that pitchers have so many things to do. They don't have time to work on their their stretch move and their moves and and stuff like that. And for me, uh, in in the minor leagues, I think the most important delivery is the stretch. Now, even though uh, if you have both a stretch and a wind up delivery, that probably the wind-up delivery is more important because of the value of the first out. So with mm -hmm. no one on base. But, I mean, and some people say, well, hey, all your big pitches in the game are made out of the stretch. Well, yeah, a lot of them are made out of the stretch. But that first hitter of an inning is, is critical. And if you are in the wind-up, you better be able to execute out of the wind-up. But for me, I would start everybody out of the stretch until they and, – and I'm an outlier in that <laughs> most, most professional guys' standards – uh, they, they look for a one-three leg. Well, I know from managing that that one-three leg is usually one-three-four, and then it goes to one-three-seven. Then he throws the breaking ball to about one-five, right. and right. and now you're you're in in a danger area relative to being able to throw people out and not having to be exactly just perfect. And so for me, I like that one-two leg. Mm -hmm. I think it cleans up arm action. I think it produces more arm speed. Uh, more explosive delivery, uh, but that's my thinking relative to the pitcher. 
And if the pitcher's bad, I'm not going to be able to throw the guy out now. How, how, no matter how good my exchange is, no matter how much velo I have, no matter how accurate I have, it just is not going to happen. So uh, I might as well make sure I get the pitch. Absolutely. Jerry, when you first, I mean, you've, you've kind of seen the position develop over many years, obviously, from a, you know, you had your offensive catchers to, you know, your, your best guys were your, your um, backups as far as for defense. And every now and then you'd have a combination of two. What was your, when you first saw, first time you saw guys dropping down to a knee? And we all know that they, they did it way back in the day on and off, but not as, not as brought to light as it is right now. What was kind of your first take? Were you, did, were you open mind right off the bat or, you know, it took me about a year, you know, going back and forth and, you know, having arguments with guys and, and saying, this is what I think. And I don't understand, you know, and I think of a lot of it is just, I didn't understand it. You know, were you right off the bat saying, I don't know if this is going to work or was it kind of, yeah, what the hell, let's give it a, let's give it a look and see where we can get some data on it. Well, I've always uh, given guys a chance to have a one knee option because for me, the setup is always about helping the pitcher execute his pitch. And I remember when we had LaDuca with the Dodgers and he was down on two knees with Gagne to help him get the ball where he needed to get. And so I've always been, uh, I've always been one that was accepting of different stances and not just one stance only. I haven't been in that position, but now, with uh, the data that we have. The one thing that we're missing though is, uh, and I've talked to the Inside Edge people, and I think that with, with the Hawkeye and StatCast or whatever we're using for our data collection now, that once we have a comparison with catchers, uh, a lot of data catching on certain pitches on one knee and catching certain pitches uh, in a more traditional stance, especially if it's the same catcher that varies his stance and seeing what the data shows us relative to uh, pitches being called strikes mm -hmm. uh, and see if there's a difference in the data. I did have uh, Kenny Candrena at Inside Edge run the data and uh, and it showed that for half the guys on one knee, they got considerably more strikes and the other guys, it didn't make a difference. But it was too small a sampling. But um, intuitively, we feel like when we open up the visual lane for the umpire and he can see it and we're quieter. and being on a, the one thing for me, being on a knee, it's you're much more relaxed. I think what we're seeing, the one thing is uh, catchers used to catch with a more horizontal back, and now we're catching with a more vertical back. And the horizontal back, which I, when I first started, you know, it was almost like you look like a, an alligator with a flat back. And, uh, and man, at the end of the game, your shoulders were sore, your neck was sore. It was all, you always felt like you were looking through your eyelids. And now guys have their heads up and, and, Tension anywhere is tension everywhere. And so I think that guys are more relaxed catching. And that's why guys are very, uh, uh, very much uh, in line with, you know, there's not a lot of resistance to, hey, let's try this. And I know the last instruction link, which was uh, November or October last year, September, October last year, a year ago, that we had everybody on a knee experimenting and trying. And we did everything from one knee to find out you know, and we evaluate everything. We put the throwing on the clock. We looked at the blocking range and, and uh, you know, so that uh, uh, until you do it, you, you don't know if it's going to be to your advantage. But I think that until we have the real solid data with enough big enough sampling that shows there is a difference for being on a knee, uh, I, I think we're, we're still 
somewhat shooting in the dark, but I think that there's less impact on your body when you're down on the knee in a three-point stance when the 100-mile-an-hour ball hits your glove and the shock factor. I think that that also uh, comes into play, and I think that the guys on one knee have, you know, I think better pocket awareness and better uh, uh, are better eye-hand relative to getting the pocket of their glove to the ball. Ball doesn't rattle around in their glove, which – a is more impactful on your hands and your body and tougher to to keep the glove in the zone and, and then also to make transfers. So uh, the jury's still out, but, uh, you know, if I were a betting man, I would say that uh, there's an advantage to being on a knee. And uh, I've never had – I've never been resistant to trying new things. Uh, I think that that's, that's how you – that's how you get better. If you if, – you know, there's more than one way to do it, and, and the more – the more options you have and the more stuff you have in your file cabinet that you can bring out, uh, the better you, you, better chance you have to adapt to the individual differences of the players. So I know a lot of the, a lot of the basis for the one knee stance is to focus on that pitch that's below the zone, you know, to create a little momentum, try to steal those pitches. And those are the pitches that, you know, hitters aren't going to go after, but we're going to try to steal those for strikes. When you're talking about, getting a, a visual look at the bottom of the zone. I, I think of, you know, a, a guest that we had on here, Jason Kendall. Now, when Jason caught, he, you know, his ass was almost on the ground because he's, his knees were closed in and he was super low. And he was kind of doing the same thing, just, you know, his knees were a little different. So uh, Jason was always a guy that was able to get that low pitch, you know, but you look at some guys who were, you know, your taller guys, your, your, um, I look at a guy like, like Jason Veritek. Jason was a, a was he six six three six four six five? Yeah, big guy. So for those guys right now, those are the guys that were the huge targets back there, and you know they they worked well with their pitchers. You know, a big leaders guy. But when you when you look at, hey, how are they how are they getting this? I think a lot of it just we didn't have the data back then. I, I wish that I had when I played. You know, someone to grade that because. <clears throat> the the era that I was playing, catchers were based on how do you handle your staff, um, how's your arm, how do you throw people out, you know, can you block a ball. Receiving was just kind of one of those things that hey, you know, catch the ball and you know hold it there. And but now it's a completely the game's completely um, it, it's grown, it's developed, and I think right now the whole position is at an all time high for you know seeing what guys are able to do you know behind the plate. Well, I, I, there, there's no doubt. I mean, I, I've been talking 50 years about winning with the Straball. Mm -hmm. I, there was no doubt in my mind. I didn't have the data, but I knew that it was that if I got a strike as opposed to a ball on a marginal pitch, um, the savant people call it the shadow zone. I call them Straballs. That it was to our advantage as a team from a defensive standpoint, and certainly from a pitching standpoint, and to get to get hitters in a less advantage count and get to two strikes as fast as you can. And I think the guys that are handling the bottom of the zone now the best are guys that are starting with their glove below the zone. And most of them start with their, their thumb on the ground, kind of somewhere between 5.30 and 6.30 and work their way up through the ball. And, uh, and uh, but I think that those guys get to the high ball better as well. And, and it also gives the umpire uh, cleaner uh, slot to to visually to to see that pitch, and they're able to to uh, 
you know, like infielders work down to up, you know, catchers working down to up, obviously uh, the, the speed that we're working at is different than, than, a, than an infielder. Right. Uh, they have more time to react, but I still think that working up down from below the high ball to, uh, uh, to up to the high ball still has some advantages and, and out to the high ball. That's the one thing. And we used to talk about catching the high ball deep because, you know, it, it, the trajectory would take it lower, but you know, when you really evaluate it, that can't possibly happen over the course of 12 inches or 14 inches. And the guys that are extended and, and leverage that ball down with their shoulder uh, seem to get more strikes. And we all, I always talked about catching the top of the high ball. And I think I can do it better from a down position. I got a question for you going into, you know, where you're talking about how the glove moves below uh, kind of, whether you want to use your knees as the bottom of the zone for the reference point. Do you feel like, or if you had the conversations, like you said, you were in um, instructional league last year and, and your guys were experimenting with that. How about targeting now? So you see, like I said, I had a game on behind me, the Dodgers are kind of known for a very quiet. We had Ryan Sanko on the call um, months ago, but he talked about the Dodgers are very, very uh, critical about how their catchers present a target it's quiet. It needs to be quiet. Then you see people that are like, Oh, you know, again, going back to the social media references, they're moving the ball so much. And is it really them moving the ball so much? Or are they watching the five seconds beforehand when the, the mitt moves down and then they make contact with it. And it's actually only three to four inches. Are you having those conversations with the catchers um, or the pitchers, or what are the pitchers, uh, you know, responses to seeing something like that? I need to have a still target, or it's okay because I know that you're going to, like we had Austin Hedges on. Hedges like, do you want the pitch or do you not want the pitch? It's about That's the not, outcome. Well, you, you, asked, you asked a question. You asked like six different questions. You talked <laughs> about target. You talked about moving the ball. You yeah. talked about pitchers throwing to a still target. Well, we, we, in big league camp, we asked our pitchers, you know, how, how many of them use the glove as, a, as their target and, and eight out of 10 didn't. And I think now uh, the glove as a target is, is overrated. Mm-hmm. And I think that what's, what's happening, here's what's happening now. Um, there's, there's a couple things. Now, if the glove is your target, is that where you want the ball to start or you want the ball to end up? And I think that that's a problem. And I think that that pitchers don't know and catchers don't know, and then they don't know what each other is thinking. So for me, um, are you a pitcher that I put my target where you want to start the pitch but not finish the pitch? Or do I put my target where you want to finish the pitch? Well, if my target is where you want to finish the pitch, especially if it's got any movement, mm-hmm. say it's a breaking ball or a fastball with a run, I'm certainly – and that's one of the problems – you know, you, like you, you saw Acuna get hit last night. Mm-hmm. They weren't trying to hit Acuna, but they were trying to go in on it. But what happened is the guy, the catcher sat way inside. And then the pitcher threw a two-seam fastball at the glove. And what happened? The ball <laughs> ran in and hit him. Now, they weren't upset that they, that they hit him, but they weren't trying to hit him. They were trying to pitch inside and trying to get some ownership on the, on the inside part of the plate. And I'm kind of digressing from what you asked me but here here's the thing it, it always depends some guys are good with a moving target yeah. if the glove is a target so as I get my glove up and I start to move you know they're used to 
playing catch with the Frisbee and the guys on the move. They're used to playing basketball and leading guys to a layup. They're used to playing football and leading us. Some pitchers are good with movement and some pitchers are not. What you want to do is, uh, is find out, well, number one, for me, I, I, I try to encourage pitchers to use something other than the glove as a target because for me, if I had my preference and everybody's individualized and, and I adapt to the individual player, I want my glove below the strike zone, preferably on the ground with the thumb down. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, once I catch the ball, if the ball, and I want to move balls that are in the strike zone and balls out of the strike zone that are close and I'm moving into the strike zone, just catching the ball and letting it sit and it's outside the strike zone. You're just reinforcing the fact that it's a ball and the umpire can see it outside the strike zone. Everybody is moving the ball. So for pitchers, to, and what, what Austin Hedges says, do you want to strike or don't you want to strike? And I think what's happened now that, A, the pitchers are saying, geez, he catches, I get more strikes when he doesn't have his glove in the strike zone and have to move it late. I, I'm not a big fan of, of late pre-pitch glove movement. I'd rather have the guy start with his glove on the ground early rather mm-hmm. than momentum going down and then have to come up. But the, 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 the issue becomes, is it called a strike or is it not called a strike? Can I execute? And if it is, then I figure out another way to execute my pitch relative to the target. I mean, where does it say, where's the rule that says the glove has to be a target? <laughs> you know, that's not in the rule book. Right. Okay, the next thing is about movement after you catch the ball. Well, I want to move pretty, any pitch that's close to the strike zone or in the strike zone, I want to have a certain amount of movement. And hopefully the movement is occurring before I catch the ball, it's not catch the ball and jerking the ball back into the strike zone. Even though we're seeing a lot of that and we're seeing a lot of pitches called called strikes, I'm not sure if it's a result of that or not, or the umpire's making the decision early before it even touches the catcher's, the catcher's glove. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that the guys that move the ball the best, and everybody is moving the ball. Some guys move the ball by catching. Everybody is, number one, I would say, you know, there, there, there's like three ways of receiving. Some guys catch it, extend it, and flex it back. Some guys catch it, extend it, and move it. And some guys catch it deep. Uh, the percentage of guys that just catch the ball deep are very, very, very minimal. If you look, you know, and I know what Ryan teaches, and I was watching Will Smith last night, and uh, Bueller threw a fastball outside and walks on when he thought it was a strike, and Will Smith caught it and at extension and moved it back into the strike zone from extension, didn't flex it back in, even though he does do that. And I'm, I'm okay with whatever you do. I don't, it doesn't matter that, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the old, you know, we go back to John Wood and he says there once was a 400 hitter named Krantz who had a most unusual stance, but with the coach's correction and Krantz's perfection, he couldn't hit the seat of his pants. So, <laughs> you know, the bottom, <laughs> so the, bo- the bottom line is, is you, you want it to be a strike? I don't care how it, if you get strikes, I'm fine. You do it standing up, you do it sitting down, you do it. I don't care how you do it, but you're going to be evaluated on the percentage of strikes in those shadow areas or balls that we get. You know, I'm trying to get every pitch that's in the strike zone called a strike and every pitch that's close to the strike zone called a strike. That's what I'm going for. The, the minimum, you know, is, is like 50%. And, and there's somewhere between 18 and 36 balls in the course of a big league game. I'm trying – the average guys get half of them and the better guys get more than half. And it will affect the outcome of the game. Now, talk, going into um, kind of umpiring, 
uh, you see that that box on TV, and we've talked about it quite a bit. And Chris calls it the strike box. I mean, is that a really good representation of what you would say the strike zone is? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know how those are configured. But all I know is that, and when if and when they bring in robo umpires, the rule now is any part of the ball over any part of the strike of the strike zone. So a ball could hit the front edge of the plate by the time it gets to the hitter, if he's in the back of the box, it's in the dirt. Mm-hmm. And that's a strike, especially mm-hmm. if it has it has some depth like a, a, a turnover changeup or a splitter or curveball or a, a turbo-type, sinker-type, late-action-type pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they'll have to readjust the, the strike zone relative to what percentage of the ball has to be over the plate. I mean, what percentage of the time the ball has to be over the plate, mm-hmm. uh, which I, don't, I hope it doesn't come to that. but. Um, I think that where the guy catches the ball doesn't necessarily – there's one that has a uh, – it's got a, a blue streak that goes through the zone, and if it gets to pink, uh, it's, it's been on the, some of the playoff mm-hmm. uh, right. uh, broadcasts. And uh, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure that every ball that shows up outside the strike zone is truly outside the strike zone on the – Based on the, on those boxes, I, I don't know the technology to be quite honest with you. But so, do you, do you think it's just? I mean, they're so technical and exact, and you know, here's the box, and it's a quarter inch off the plate. Now, your <clears throat> when your hand's in your glove, you know, you're catch the ball with your hand, and if the glove's on, you got a bigger part of your hand. Now, if you got half your glove on the plate, half off, and the ball hits it there, your umpire is going to give you that but that's not necessarily the quote-unquote correct strike because it hit your glove, which is half on, half off, but your glove is part of your hand. ball hits your hand, so it should be a strike. Yeah, well, I mean, they're they're supposedly judging it where the ball is at the front edge of the plate. That's why pitches that, that, that are strikes at the front edge of the plate, a higher percentage of pitches that are strikes at the front edge of the plate, uh, get called strikes than pitches that become strikes later deeper in the strike zone like a backdoor breaking ball or a, or a comeback two seam or something like that uh, because that's where the umpires are focused on the front of the plate. I want to, want to shift some gears here because talking about robo-umpires makes me cranky uh, just because I think <laughs> it's such an art when we watch you know catchers being able to manipulate and massage pitches into the strike zone. Um, throwing routines. I, I I've heard a couple different podcasts that you were on and, and, and watched some stuff about you throwing. Uh, and I thought your throwing routine is just so above par. There's a lot of good stuff into it. Can, can you walk us through or our listeners through just kind of like what, what you've done with catchers in the past when it comes to throwing routines? Well, during the season, I did this. Uh, like, uh, I don't think in 140 games in the minor leagues that – uh, we never took a day off from throwing. Now, certain guys would, uh, you know, and professional players know how to, how to protect their arms when they're throwing in terms of effort and stuff like that. Uh, now, I, I wouldn't, you know, maybe there is a day here or there where they would really back off or not even throw. It depends on the guy. And, but we, we threw a lot every day. And one, we had a lead-up uh, throwing routine, and we used uh, – I picked up this uh, – it's kind of like a, a hockey puck with a red stripe on it. I got it in Japan when we were over there, but I've always used stripe balls. And I, I think not only for catchers, but for all infielders and outfielders, they should be throwing with stripe balls because rotation is 
so critical in terms of having carry and backspin and so on. So we have like a, a seven uh, a, a seven uh, part uh, lead up throwing that takes about three minutes, and then then we go back and and we we break out the stripe balls. And one of the things when we're first throwing that for me was really important that you start with the ball in your glove because then you're working it. Now, we're not playing quick catch where I'm transfer becomes an issue, but there's two pieces of throwing. There's transfer and there's throwing. So if you start with the ball in your glove when you're first warming up and, and throwing, uh, and then we, uh, we, and we always, whenever possible, and this was every day because I'd bring my catchers out early, we throw on the field. That's what I say. We, go, we always work in the office, and our office is between home plate and second base. And so uh, after we did our lead-up throwing, it would take us back to about 60 feet, and then we'd start with the ball in the glove and, and play catch and work back to, uh, work back to uh, a, a high lob, long toss throw. Now, how far and how high is individualized? And it varies from day to day, but we'd always, you know, some days we'd throw two, 300 feet, then come back. And some days we would do pull downs and then we work our way back in. And, and this would take maybe 10 minutes, but we're just basically, you know, kind of the Alan Jager uh, long mm -hmm. toss program. And I did it. Our volume of throwing was probably more than any catcher in, in, in professional baseball. <clears throat> and then we'd come back to 130 feet and uh, we would throw out of our stance with a ball in our glove, working on balls in different locations, you know, maybe four or five, depends. And we didn't have a specific number. Everybody would listen to their body and they had an individualized program for themselves on that day based on what their body told them. Then we come back to 90 feet. And then we had like 15 things that we could access at 90 feet. We, maybe we work on pitch outs, maybe it'd be block and retrieve. Maybe it would be pick to third base or second base. Maybe it'd be uh, balls in the dirt, picking it and throwing it. But we'd work on on some aspect of our throwing, and then we'd come back to 60 feet, play quick catch. Then we would go from uh, live, and I'd just stand out there, and we'd go uh, uh, inside pitch, middle pitch, up and out, low and out, uh, clearing a left-hander, and then a pitch out right-handed and a pitch out left-handed. And, and sometimes we'd put the clock on that, and sometimes we didn't put the clock on that. But we would do a semblance of that routine every day. Some, depending upon the individual guy, some guys would be full out. Some guys would be less effort. Uh, and we'd also – I was a big guy that day. I believed in taking infield every day. And we would <laughs> take infield every day and, and throw. So if a guy was going to – throw during infield on I didn't make them throw during infield on everybody if they're going to throw maybe they'd moderate their early throwing based on what we do but after we did that we'd go into a defensive fundamental then we'd go to infield and then we'd go into our batting practice I'm, I'm talking about in a pro in a pro Absolutely. setting so I uh, so follow up on that real quick so you you had mentioned at the beginning that you were taking some courses and and it's amazing at 36 years young you're still learning right yeah i wish, <laughs> I wish. Uh, you should you should you should be born at 100 and work your way back right. <laughs> <laughs> uh so so you had you've taken these classes how would you change your routines uh you know as it pertains to bringing in something like driveline are are you a fan of the plyometric balls 
um, throwing heavier weighted balls. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I have enough research or if I've done enough research, but I, hear your opinion on using plyo balls or heavy, heavy weighted balls in throwing programs. In 1968, I was at Santa Monica High School. It was, I had coached a freshman team at UCLA. I had gone out and coached at, at Pioneer High School at, in Whittier, came back to UCLA, got my master's in Canice, and went to Santa Monica. And, and that was a time where the Eastern Bloc philosophy, some of the training methods, and, and that's where overload, the overload training came into play with, uh, with javelin throwers and, and shot putters and stuff like that. And so I had gotten, you know, I remember it's, it's clear as day. Hey, overload is rate intensity duration. You either throw uh, more, more reps with greater intensity or for a longer duration. One of the greater intensity things was, was overload, weighted. And so I made a bunch of polyurethane. We had a mold, and I made some polyurethane. I just – it was a trophy, I think. And I just put polyurethane in it. That was my mold, and I made a bunch of over, over overload baseballs. And uh, this is 1968, I think. And we had an area where we could hang a bunch of nets, and all winter we threw into those nets. I don't know. We didn't have a specific program, but we threw a lot into those nets with those overload baseballs. And uh, I've, I've been a fan of, uh, of overload, you know, and, and when we throw long, long tosses overload. Okay. I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing. And uh, so I've been a fan of, of uh, weighted implement training for a long time. You just have to, now I understand, you know, what moderation looks like and having a, you know, rest and recovery. I used to think that sleep was the enemy, but now I understand. <laughs> Now I understand it probably isn't, and I probably killed a bunch of guys because I didn't give them enough time to recover. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, and I'm very uh, – Kyle Bodie and I are good friends. I've been up there four or five times, and um, and I'm a big believer in – in. Uh, and again, it's very individualized how you do it, when you do it, uh, the intent, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for me, uh, it's, uh, during the season uh, – it's not total maintenance, but our our rate of improvement is going to be less. I think one of the things, uh, uh, when I was at Cal Poly, we had five big league pitchers in five years, and we uh, we had a very aggressive weighted ball program that we used during the season. And I know that I got like five calls at the end of the season. And I remember Andrew Checkett, the guy who's at UC Santa Barbara, called me. He says, okay, he says, come on, what's the deal? I said, what do you mean, what's the deal? He says, Every guy, we get these scouting reports, and all these guys are throwing 92, 93, and by the time we see them, they're throwing 83 to 86, and all your guys are throwing harder. What are you doing? <laughs> and I and I think, and I'm no genius. I just, right. hey, we threw a lot, and we, we maintained our, our arm strength and arm speed. And we did, we had a maintenance program that involved with certain guys, yeah. overload, throwing uh, weighted balls. At that time, we are using... Uh, 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 let's see, they were, uh, uh, 21 ounce, 14 ounce and seven ounce oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, balls <laughs> throwing boulders. <laughs> yeah, do you think, do you think with the, um, you know, with the whole, well, let's, let's go into driveline since, you know, we, you mentioned, um, Kyle. So a lot of guys are doing it. Um, 
you know, they're doing it for off-season routines. There's guys doing it, you know, in-season as well. You think that guys right now are, are putting more emphasis on, um, let's say, throw hard versus get rid of it quicker? Uh, I think the emphasis now is on, uh, is on release. I think, and, and, you know, and I think that that's both good and bad. Because uh, when you break down throwing, probably 63% of, of the glove-to-glove time is ball flight. And when you put all your emphasis on release, sometimes you lose velocity. And, uh, and uh, I, I think you have to find the sweet spot. Uh, I think it and, – and probably one of the things where people really are missing the boat is just based on inline carry and rotation. I think the biggest thing, uh, especially, you know, when we look at the Rapsodo data and true spin – and nothing – true spin is, is, is more important for catchers than anybody because you want to have inline carry because when, when you don't – when the spin doesn't produce inline carry and the ball starts to run sink or tail, uh, you're losing velocity and it's taking longer to get there That's 63%. Uh, you're, uh, it, it's, it's inefficient. And now, it may come out of your hands at 83, but with a lot of sink and run, it's going to lose, lose velo- significant more velocity than if you have uh, true spin and backspin. And I've, I've used, like another thing we did in instructional link, which I thought was really good, we used that that uh, DK ball tracker. Yes. And yes. where you can get spin rate and spin axis. And we did a lot of experimentation with that. And I think that that, I think that's really, there you go, perfect. I, I really like that. I really like that a lot. And we found that that if you had a little stick them on your fingers as a catcher and threw, a, threw that ball that, probably translated into about 300 RPMs in spin rate. Oh, man. <laughs> That's a lot of carry. I, I go, still on the topic of this, you know, and for some of our younger listeners, you hear a lot of people, and I train a lot of, uh, you know, young kids, oh, coach won't let him catch because he pitches also. You hear that aspect of it. And then you also hear, oh, he can't pitch because he catches. I, to me, I feel like it's mismanaged by the coach more than anything, but I guess your opinions on kids that pitch and catch or catch and pitch. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. I, I mean, I mean, in the day, you played every position. You, you pitched, you caught, you played the infield, you played the outfield. I think you just have to look at the, uh, at the health of the player and make sure that he has enough time to recover. Let me, let me go back and just say one thing when yeah. we were talking about throwing velocity or release yes uh here's the one thing that you know chris chris asked that i think the one thing for me is that uh i'd much rather have the guy throw the ball with more intent and spray it all over the place and then and then adjust back to find his sweet spot where velocity and accuracy come together mm-hmm. Because if you don't, I, I, I think a lot of times, and you see it with with uh, with young kids when they first start to pitch, the coach hands in the ball is Johnny nice and easy now, just hit your target, and Johnny delivers this nice and easy little delivery, and by the time he's 15 and he can't make the JV team because he's throwing 70 miles an hour because he, <laughs> he, he he's nice and easy just hitting his target. Now, don't get me wrong, hitting your target is, to me, the most important thing for, mm-hmm. for a pitcher right now. I think that's that's kind of the black hole where you know we're so obsessed with velocity but my feeling and this uh 
you know, the mechanics to throw the ball with with effort are a lot different than the mechanics to throw it nice and easy with no effort. Now, ultimately, we want effortless effort and 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 create velocity and accuracy with that. But I, I know that I remember when I was with the Dodgers and I, I, I was a catching coordinator at one time and Del, we had a number of great catchers in the organization at the time. We had uh, Del Crandall, who was the godfather of catching, caught in the big leagues at 18, was catching Spawn and, and Sane and those guys. And, and I had a kid named Josh Glassy, and we were throwing in a, you know, hey, take it easy now, and we're just trying to be accurate. He says, and then after it was over, Del wouldn't say anything at the time. He says, yeah. He says, that was pretty good. He's going to be nice and easy at 2 3 two, four, and he's going to get released. <laughs> I said, you know, I said, he says, let him turn it, you know, it's one of those nice and easy hit just at your target or turn it loose, Mother Goose. And his feeling was, hey, turn it loose, Mother Goose, swing hard in case you might hit it, and then adjust from there as opposed to nice and easy and keep trying to add layers of velocity, which means that it totally changes the mechanics of throwing. I want to shift something. I want to ask you a question, and, and this just came up when we were talking about kind of getting after it and, and talking about intent. And this is going into hitting, actually. Um, you said on, I think it was an ABCA podcast with Jeremy Sheetinger one time, you talked about hitting um, and knowing that somebody can turn on a pitch and hit the ball down the left field line. Uh, and I don't know if it was on the line, but just hitting it directly down the left field line, that's when you knew that you had somebody that was super strong and had a really, you know, above average swing. I, I guess, um, and going back to that, I just wanted a little bit more in depth, and this is a selfish reason that I'm asking you this, because I just, for clarification of what you meant by that. Uh, well, what we're talking about is being able to hit a ball, take the guy's best fastball, hit it down the left, in between the left fielder and the foul line without topspin and without hook. That swing plays on every pitch. And I think that what we – and, again, I, I'm, I'm an outlier on this because everybody, you know, given their druthers, when their foundational swing that they're trying to, that they're trying to uh, develop is, is someone who can hit the ball to the opposite field first. To me, the pull swing is the opposite field swing. It's just the contact point is different. Mm -hmm. But once you have that – once you can take that guy's best fastball, now I can – relax in the batter's box I don't have to cheat to get to the fastball inside even though nobody throws it very effectively right now and that's one of the thought that's one of the issues why guys are so concerned on getting the ball the other way now with with two strikes obviously we change our our approach but once you can do that you have the basis for the kind of swing it takes to be successful on every pitch in the zone and uh, uh, to me the separator in professional baseball is the fastball and the ultimate separator is the fastball in. When you can cover the fastball in and not pull it 400 feet foul and not get sawed off, uh, and you can you can create backspin down the left field line, uh, that then you got a good foundation for everything else. Thank you for clarifying that. Sorry to kind of no, switch gears. Fine. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place. Like I said, you're that's just a you're a plethora of knowledge, and um, <laughs> it's just it just been fantastic <clears throat> since we were talking about you know as far as getting getting rid of the ball there's more emphasis right now on the you know on the exchange you, you see guys with long arm paths short arm paths what were you guys doing 
um, say you get a kid that goes to the old Tom Amansky T position, you know, when they throw, how, how did you guys teach a young kids as far as to shorten up their arm path? Well, uh, one, one of the things I always talked about taking the ball out of the top of the glove, you know, so that, you know, the, that the arm swing, you know, shorter arm swing. And then I always talked, we always worked on, on trying to, as best we could get our hand inside our elbow. And, uh, you know, whether we were doing it with a reverse throw type drill, which is, you know, that, you know, reverse throwing where you just kind of turn and throw mm-hmm. kind of the Mike, the Mike Marshall thing or, or, you know, whatever we used, we're just, you know, a lot of video. I've always, you know, I, I have a football background and I coach football. And so using video uh, was something early on. I've always, I've been a guy that videoed from the er, the middle sixties until today. Obviously the technology is a lot better today, but using videos and, and, and looking at, uh, looking at arm action and, and things like that. So a lot of the guys, I'll, I'll use one for example. So, you know, watching guys like JT Romuto, you know, who's one of the best in the game as far as just being polished all the way around. And when he goes to throw, whether it's in between innings or even, you know, even in a game, you see him wait till the runner kind of tips his hat, what he's going to do. And then you see JT start with his traditional stance and then he'll kind of drop back, you know, almost like a, almost like a cheating, a cheating stance for a showcase, you know, but when he does that, it keeps him in line. It keeps his direction going to his target. And then you see other guys that will kind of slide out into that L what they get their momentum going to the outside part of the plate and then redirecting it. Well, I think what you're seeing from pretty much everybody, if you look at it very closely, you know, it's very simply right behind left and left to the target. Now with some guys swing out a little bit, especially with left-hand hitters up there, or, you know, if the pitch, if the pitch is more towards their extended to their glove side, but uh, it, the, the, the guys that are best are the guys that get, and, and it's not, for momentum it's for alignment it helps them get get aligned just and and the good throwers from the infield and outfield they do the same thing you know they just get that right foot behind their left foot and their left foot to the target the sooner you get your right foot down the sooner you're going to get your left foot down and you can't throw till you get your left foot down and so guys are not gaining ground they're just gaining getting alignment and uh, I think that that's that's the big thing now some guys will start with a little bit more angle uh, 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 like Yachty has more of an angled, an angled setup, which I think helps him, but it also helps him get strikes at certain parts of the plate. And then, uh, and then, uh, uh, who's the guy at, uh, oh, Atlanta? God, I can't think of, you uh, know, Flowers, Becker, Darno. Flowers, yeah. Yep. Tyler Flowers really, really creates a side, he catches a lot of pitches sideways. Mm-hmm. I think. You know he's lacking maybe some arm strength, and he puts himself in a more aligned position so he can get the ball airborne sooner. One more, I got one more one more question, Jerry. So <clears throat> the college game right now, you see all the kids have the giant wristbands, you know, with the the thirty eight hundred different plays, and you know seven eight four five three, and they got to look down and and pop it on there. When you get a kid that comes into pro ball, you know, and they've been They've been kind of babied, you know, throughout the whole college process because coaches have their jobs on the line. It's not as secure as it used to be back in the day. 
Um, so they have to win. So they want to make sure, okay, I'm going to call the game because I can't afford to have you try to figure out and screw us up and, and lose. So what's kind of the, kind of the intro that you would take a kid, let's just say he's a, say he's a college kid, you know, signs a junior year guy and, you know, all of a sudden now it's going to be okay. You have to go and learn how to call a game. You know, you've had it done for you in a while and in pro ball, you know, the, the, the big thing, obviously nobody pitches inside in, in college and a lot of guys don't really pitch a whole lot of inside in the pro game, but how do you get them to say, okay, here's when you go inside, here's a good opportunity to, or was there a, you know, at the younger levels, Hey, first pitch is get ahead with any pitch and the second pitch go in to make them uncomfortable. You know, how do you, how do you walk through a kid who's just learning to call a game, to look at, you know, the, the hitter, look what is, look where his take is, look where his feet are positioned. Does he change his feet position from pitch to pitch? You know, does he have a bad swing? Are the, is this more of a film thing for them to see? Or is it, hey, we're going to start you off on this kind of game calling 101 and then advance you to 102, 103, and so on and so forth? Well, I think number one, I think if you think that in my, in my experience, these guys – have an idea how to call a game. Even if someone else is calling the game for them, unless they're totally brain dead, then they're, they'll never learn learn how to call a game anyway if they're just out there uh, throwing fingers down there. If they've got dumb fingers, they're not thinking. I think that they – I think every kid, when you catch, you know, well, I would call this pitch in this situation or, uh, you know, if they're not at least mentally involved in the process, even if the coach doesn't take the time to talk him through the process in his way of thinking, uh, that's number one. So I don't think they're starting at ground zero. I think they got to, if they're going to be any good, they, they got to feel for it. Number one, number two, you have to have a, a plan uh, going in. Hey, this is what we try. And, and we probably have a little different plan for each pitcher, but on every plan, the number one most important piece of that plan is pitch call to the strengths of your pitcher. And so now again, then you have to learn your pitcher. So once I learned my pitcher and his strengths, now in the minor leagues, not only do I have to pitch call to the pitcher's strengths to get outcome, but I also have, uh, I also have to help that pitcher develop because he's not mm -hmm. good enough to pitch in the big leagues and he's got to do some things in a game that are, are not indicative or not conducive to helping us win this game. And hopefully we find situations where we have wiggle room relative to pitch development and winning and performance so that the, that guy can develop the skills, his skills in a way that he can pitch at the next level or pitch in the big leagues. And so it's, there's, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. And I think that the way, the way we do it is uh, we talk in between innings. We have a philosophy going in. We spend time talking about situational pitching. We talk about time critiquing situations in the game. And there's, and you know, it's a, it's a, there's a very fine line. You have to be very careful uh, that because it, you get into a big league dugout and basically what happens if, if you have a bad outcome on a pitch, a pitching coach, you know, when, when something bad happens, you know, why did he call that pitch? What, were, what was your thinking there? And, you know, my, my response was, well, if you don't like the pitch he's calling, call the pitches yourself and no pitching coach wants to do that. I think that may happen with all the data coming in and all the, the – the time responsibilities for catchers, and I'm not a, I'm not opposed to that. But the fact of the matter is that to develop it, you got to spend time. Like when I was on the big league staff, 
after the, the day after the game, I'd sit down with that catcher. We'd go over every pitch. What was your thinking here? What's going on here? And we would evaluate every pitch. Not that, not in a way of, well, critique, uh, finding fault, but talking through the option line for that pitcher and that catcher in that situation. And, and so uh, I just think, like one of the things that we're doing right now with our catchers is every day presenting them with a, an, a snippet of a game, maybe an inning or a part of an inning, with a scouting report on the pitcher and a scouting report on the hitters, and then talking through the game in terms relative to our game plan, uh, you know, which probably has seven facets to it relative to uh, first pitch strikes, one of the first two pitches for strikes, two of the first three pitches, play, pay close attention to the 1-1 one, one pitch, treat the 2-2 two, two pitch like a 3-2 pitch, create uncomfortable at-bats, ahead, uh, tilt, behind, box, or half box, which are – you know, kind of, that's kind of like our little scheme of things so that they have a template that they can use for not only that individual pitcher, but the whole staff. They have a philosophy of what we're trying to do relative to then the situation weighs in. Do we need a ground ball here? What's his ground ball pitch? We need a strike here. What's his strike pitch? We need a swing and miss. What's his swing and miss pitch against this against this, this particular hitter? Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of – there's a lot of uh, layers to the onion, and you only develop them by spending time, uh, uh, allocating periods of time to have those discussions. Now, this has been fantastic, Jerry. I uh, can't thank you enough. I think, like I said, you know, before Chris asked his question, I think we've taken just about any, everything and everything out of you here. So, um, time, guys. Be glad to do it again if you need me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know we, we will. I know this is, this will be very well listened. Uh, so, um, yeah, send, me, send me the link when you get it up. Absolutely. 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 Thanks again, Jerry and, and be well and, and stay safe and, uh, wish you all the best. Thanks guys. Same to you guys. Take Thanks care. Jerry. Take care. Have a good day. You too. And that's a wrap on the third inning of game number four, a Big thank you to Jerry for taking the time out of his busy schedule to meet with us. We also want to say thank you to all of you for listening into the podcast. Remember, this podcast is presented to you by All Star Sports. Move forward and rise above. Until next time, stay safe, stay tuned, and we'll catch you real soon. <laughs>